but then it's quite nice. My girlfriend has family in North Vascona and uh, mm. uh, relatives also close by. Mm. So mm. it's a uh, quite good location and also quite close to the West Coast where I'm, where I'm from. So Elmut, isn't that in more of the eastern part of Småland or? Um, or where is uh, it? I'm a bit confused here. Yeah, or, my, my geography is not, it's, it's not in the eastern part. It's not okay. close by the coast. Okay. Uh, so it's more mid, mid of Sweden. Close to Växjö or something, or is it? Yeah, I think it's southwest from Växjö. Okay. I might make a fool out of myself now, but <laughs> it might be that. Should but I think you, it's like one. Buy a school. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy, but it was an amazing opportunity. It's yeah. a nice like house with um, what is called kakelungnar and. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and a lot of a big, character. A big building as well? or Yeah, quite big. 310 square meters, I think. Right. Um, like 20 rooms or something? Or? No, no. It's, uh, I think it's eight rooms. But okay. then they have a big, the old school building, yeah. uh, or school room where they had classes. Yeah. So that's quite big. I think that's like 60 square meters or so. And then yeah. on the upper floor, they had uh, the, the gymnastics. So it's uh, like one big oh. room, 96 Gymnastic square hall, meters. Basically. Yeah. Really? So we plan to have a ping pong table and um, <laughs> place to hang out for the but, kids. But that, that sounds really cool. But that's a that's little, little bit bigger than Please a summer. Some, some invitation for the ping yeah, pong balls you have. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I'm from Småland as well. So that sounds oh, yeah, like you are. Yeah. But, but how come you bought a, like a school building? It's, it's very strange to me. Can you just, you know, what attracted you to it? I think a couple of things. It's... It's a cool idea to fix it up. It has a lot of character and a lot of potential, a lot mm -hmm. of things to do, of course, but still in good shape. So we don't need to fix it up from scratch. Um, Are you going to rent it out in part or what's you going to use it for or just use it for yourself? Or? Yeah, I mean, that's the main idea. And, yeah. and I think also like long term, it would be good to have, first of all, a place for where all children can have their own rooms, yeah. uh, potentially also when they sort of get find some partners or get kids on their own right. to be like a place to gather for a long time. Yeah. So um, looking at the prices closer to Stockholm is quite, you don't get that much house for, for yeah. the price we paid. So, uh, um, so awesome. Uh, and yeah. you haven't bought it yet or you don't, we have paid the down payment. Right. Okay. So we have sort of committed to it. Mm. Any date when you can move in potentially? Yeah. 25th of March. Really? This so, month? So quite soon. So we're sort of planning on what to buy first, like clean it up and buy beds. <laughs> Are you going to have like a housewarming party or something? Uh, and am, am I invited? Uh, I haven't <laughs> planned that much yet, but you will be definitely invited. I, I think we'll have more sort of open door policy. Everyone who wants to come by yeah. is uh, welcome. You need to have some big uh, computer like cluster room or something like a <laughs> server hall or something right i have planned for an office slash music studio in right. one of the rooms yeah, yeah. cool so that's um that's planned music with what like pianos or guitars or what's your one piano was included in the house oh, and also course. one of those school organs is also there so we yeah, got a lot of old stuff uh with the building yeah 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 so it will probably be piano in that room but then also I mean, I, I'm doing some music production, electronic music in my spare time. Mm. So um, that, that's a good place where I can actually put my speakers and uh, yeah. Sounds awesome. Try out things. 
you have to extend an invitation, uh, especially especially during the summer times. You know, if you have you know, get some nice weather during the vacation or something, and come down to to Småland and my you know old home area, so to speak. That would yeah. be awesome. Where is Småland? Where are you from? Uh, Kalmar, Oskarshamn, so right. the eastern part yeah, of Småland. Yeah, but it's not that far. You usually have to go by train, you know, through Växjö or something anyway. So yeah, exactly. That awesome. So, with that, you know, welcome here, Daniel Tistrom. Thanks. We've known each other for quite some time, I think. Uh, is it like five, seven years now or something? Yeah, I think so. First Data Innovation Summit, right? Right, you, you're one of the original people <laughs> from being first in the inaugural. I, I like that the originals, one yeah, the originals. The originals. Yeah, yeah. I should get like t shirts or something. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah, and of course, one of the experts, you know, in AI and, and data science in Sweden. So, so it's a true pleasure to to have you here. And uh, yeah, let's start with that. H- how would you describe yourself? You know, who is Daniel Tistram? Um, I'm nowadays a pretty old ex Gothenburg person. Oh, you from Gothenburg? Had, um, mm. You can't hear that though. No, I think it's unfortunately sort of worn <laughs> yeah. off. Uh, I haven't lived in Gothenburg since 94, mm. I think. Okay. Then I studied in Jönköping, so also a small land connection, and then uh, moved up here. But I would say I'm a very curious person, serial nerd. I always have some serial topic. Nerd, what, what does that mean? Serial I get like passionately interested in new things and just ah. want to sort of dive deep. Mm. But then sort of my... My patience probably runs out when I get to a certain depth of it, and then yeah. I rather sort of expand horizontally. So I'm probably not the best at anything, but I have a f- fairly broad perspective on things. Mm. And a bit humble as well, I think. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> cool. But if we move back a bit from the beginning, and, and uh, what's your field of study to begin with? Business administration. <clears throat> Right, which so it is, wasn't the technical. No, which is a bit odd. What is really business administration? Can you just elaborate on a bit more what that means um, for a tech nerd like myself? Yeah, I'll, I can try. Um, I mean, I, I studied natural science at gymnasiet, right. uh, but at that time I, I didn't really, I couldn't really connect like the use use cases for all the maths and physics, um, and I was also a bit tired of school. Um, and sort of had quite an easy, easy way in school up to that time. And then all of a sudden I had to study and I didn't have the energy for it. So mm. I ended up with business administration, which I think, I, I don't know why really, but it's, I think what you learn is, it's basically the two sides of it. I studied uh, international business administration. Um, so more like how are organizations and companies run and how do the markets where they operate on like behave. Mm. So it's, it's, um, both like economics, micro and macro, but primarily like how, how do you set up an organization? How do you set up business control systems like KPIs? Um, um, but then we had a lot of leadership and entrepreneurship in, Mm. in Jönköping. So that was quite quite fun as well. So every block, uh, course block, we had a company that we were attached to. So we could do like practical work at the same time uh, as studying, which okay. I found quite interesting because then you can see 
not only learn the theory, but also try it out in practice, uh, which is, I think, also a trait that I have. I want to, I want to see or understand, like, how can I use this? Yeah, Yeah. Um, makes a lot of sense. Okay, cool. But then after your studies, what was the next step? That was um, management trainee at Scania. Scania, right. So that was, uh, I mean, there, there is sort of a red thread, even if you look at my CV, you don't see it clearly. But, yeah. but uh, I, was, I was interested in data and numbers already back then. Yeah. Uh, but then I was totally naive and thought that, okay, if I go to a professional company like Scania, that is the best in its business, more or less. Mm. Uh, they probably have a lot of data available and I can sort of work with controlling and take decisions and like understand that thing. But then it was like a brutal awakening when I actually started working and finding out that they didn't have all the numbers and uh, uh, there were a lot of broken processes and things like that. But I started out in 99 where in the middle of the sort of IT boom, Everyone thought I was stupid because everyone started working either as a management consultant or with a tech company. Mm. But I, I felt at that time that I didn't really believe the hype at that time. It mm. felt that it was a bubble coming up. And uh, fortunately, or sort of, I, I, I was right true. in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also I felt I had so much more to learn and going in a trainee program to really get like a deep understanding of how a company of that size runs and why uh, was quite interesting. Was it some specific part of Skonia that you... I had a lot of... I started out with um, on industrial and machine, uh, industrial and marine engines. So like trying to look at how is the value increase of engines in production Mm. and how do you like do that accounting. So I was also trying to figure out how information flows between systems worked. Mm-hmm. And then I did a portfolio on R&D, portfolio analysis on like what are the most important projects and how do you manage them and how do you work between project organization and the line organization? Right. Like where do the handshakes take place? How do you organize that? What is the right <laughs> setup to have both a line organization and a product organization? I think it's actually still a valid topic for today. It is. I think it uh, applies quite a lot also to uh, to our domain. Yeah. Where, where uh, I mean, it, and, ta- and it takes you, different disciplines and different skill sets to to deliver uh, yeah. on data and AI. Um, and a functional organization can somehow sometimes prevent that mm. unless you sort of figure out a way to work across mm. silos. Mm. But I don't know if there is any right answer. But I. What we did then, I think I might remember wrong, but mm. trying to basically move people from the line organization into the product organization and have like clear guidelines on like basically scoping and stuff like that. So it was. Mm. But I guess uh, another question could be more like uh, you still want to have people, if we take more like, like a product organization, you want to build something, yeah. uh, potentially software, or it could be hardware, I guess, in Scania's case as well. Um, then you can argue that you can have a line organization where the people report in in some kind of line, but you can also have a different organization in how people are grouped according to product teams or something. Exactly. Right? 
And, and Spotify, of course, had their kind of way of doing this with squads and chapters and some yeah. kind of reversed matrix organizational shape in some way. Yeah, exactly. Do you have any like best practices or favorite ideas of how to best set up so you have both the... I guess one way to phrase this is um, you want the product teams potentially, and please disagree if you don't agree with it, but... You want potentially the product teams to be cross-functional in terms of they, they need to have the competences necessary to build some product and no single person can have all the competences. So you have to have a mix of these kind of skills yeah. to be able to build their product. But, but at the same time, you want to have people that can communicate with people of their own peers in some way. Exactly. And, and that could be more of a functional kind of dimension of it. Yeah. How do you ma manage that? How can you find both the cross-functional kind of grouping of people while at the same time having like a functional way of communicating or grouping people? It's, I would say, I mean, there, it is a trade-off, uh, but I think you can manage it. I, I, in, like, I, th I think there is like an, an evolving way based on maturity. I mean, normally it starts with like a centralized analytics and data team. Mm -hmm. Normally from what I've ex at least experienced, experienced is that the data team is split going into tech and then uh, the sort of analytics remains within sort of product or finance or something. Mm -hmm. But then after a while, when at least when a company scale, it, it will be hard because you're depending on requirements and to get good requirements, it needs... Uh, you have to rely on people actually understanding what the potential is in right. using data analytics. And knowing and, the domain in some way, right? Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so, so I think that's, that's a problem after a while. And then from what I've seen and what I've applied myself is going into a hybrid mode. So you maybe mm -hmm. retain some central resources, but then as you say, embed um, analysts and data scientists into teams. Mm -hmm. um, so I've done that in many places like Cambi and... Uh, um, Epidemic Sound, um, Spotify as well, where I was as a consultant. Right, so, I mean, right. we had a clear cross-functional teams with product managers that were actually yeah. trying to drive uh, improvements on like user experience and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so then, then of course, connecting the the other level is like through practices. So mm -hmm. I've normally said that. What needs to be done and why that should be those decisions should be taken in the team that has all the context, mm -hmm. but then sort of how and the who perspective, like hiring, yeah. I can probably do well, uh, best from like, um, a professional, like discipline level. Mm -hmm. So, so given, I mean, you worked with a lot of companies, uh, either as an employee or, or as a consultant as well. So, so you have like a, a large like diverse experience from, from how companies are set up. Um, what, what would be your recommend, recommendation though for, for someone that haven't really figured this out yet, or I guess no one really has in a great way, but you mentioned something about the hybrid potential organization with some kind of centralized part and then some kind of embedded yeah. part as well. Is that your... Yeah, I, th I think so. Um, there, I mean, if you... At Epidemic Sound, for example, we, we, I was hired to set up a new embedded organization mm. uh, called Product Analytics from, from the beginning. Mm. But then we still had a central team. But then we had like different managers. We had some coordination issues because we basically a data team had one manager. Mm. I had one and BI had one. Mm. And um, 
That is hard. So we try to group that under one umbrella in the end to at, at least get alignment and so on. Yeah. And I think it's also often why there is a trend uh, that people or companies uh, appoint C-level, uh, like chief data officers or chief analytic officers. Mm-hmm. Because after a while, when you get multiple teams and uh, you get more strategic value, you need to have quite a holistic perspective while still retaining uh, autonomy and local decision making as much as possible. Right, because that's one of the core things, I guess. I mean, if you do have a cross-functional team that have some autonomy and and can move quickly and iterate quickly on the product, uh, that, I guess, is one of the objectives you want to have. Definitely. And also, I think, at least from my side, as... I mean, I'm. It, it it doesn't make sense when you reach a certain scale when you have multiple stakeholders that you work with and you have a, a team that is a certain size. Mm. If if you as a manager becomes the sort of central point and need to triage everything and yeah. assign all work to all people, yeah. that is a bottleneck. Yeah, doesn't so scale. Now it exactly it doesn't scale. So I think eventually you need to figure out how to solve scalability, and I think that. Uh, is, I think, a trend in many ways. Also with like data meshes and stuff like that, mm. is like the same premise. Like, how do you scale? How do you scale a monolith, basically? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And it, you can't just do it by throwing more people onto the problem. You need to pro- probably think think a bit outside the box and figure out how to do it without sacrificing other other things. Yeah. Yeah. So, so just to summarize a bit, I mean, you can think about, I guess two extremes here either we have just a single like line organization everyone everything is going through some manager and and that will have as you say some bottleneck issues and scalability issues but it will be super aligned i guess everything (laughs) but the speed will probably be bad and autonomy will be really poor and and motivation probably will poor as well (laughs) if everything is you know going top down in that way yeah but then I guess, uh, and please do disagree, uh, the other extreme could be if you have only like embedded teams that they don't get like some crit- kind of critical mass if you take data science or analytics uh, and you want to have some kind of more you know, infrastructure support or, or some way of, of building system or deploying system or, or doing that. And if you just have a single person working in a product team without support from any kind of centralized team potentially that knows mm. how to do things and can build these kind of supporting systems, they will never scale as well, right? Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. And I think I think that is also why I sort of tend to go with a hybrid uh, model, maybe in the same organizational structure, because then mm. you can look at, like, for example, wh- when is the right time to invest in structuring your data? Mm. Um, and documenting your data and making sure that lineage is available and that you have logging of errors and changes and stuff like that. I mean, it happens when, when, I mean, for one person, the cost of error is probably quite small, but if you, if you extrapolate that in on a multi, on a bigger team, it, it becomes substantial after a while. Mm. So I think it's also finding that balance, which I think also is one of the nice things I, I like with the whole sort of platform thinking uh, in general. I mean, and what, do you, what do you mean with platform thinking? No, but I mean, after, after a while, most companies probably end up with a, a platform team in tech that mm-hmm. doesn't deliver customer features, but delivers productivity features for, for the engineers. Supporting systems. Exactly. And I think it's the same for 
uh, for data, for example. Yeah. Like when, when is it worthwhile to have a few more data engineers to actually improve the productivity of the data science team? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I mean, when you start scaling up and running many A-B tests uh, each day or each week, mm-hmm. you need infrastructure to do it. Yeah. So I think it's the way we normally approach it also from when we give advice is to do it first, maybe the cheap way, mm-hmm. um, and find value. And when you see that you want to run it again, but the cost of achieving that value one more time mm-hmm. is prohibitively sort of increasing, mm-hmm. then you need to invest in making it more efficient. So I right. think it's iterating on that and trying to find some kind of balance. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. And, and if we just imagine some company out there and they now want to invest them in becoming you know, much more data and AI driven in some way, and they, they don't have any, any kind of budget restraints here, they just want to do it as quickly as they can. I, I guess you can think about two ways to do it. Either you you start off with three ways to do it. But okay, you can start off by building like embedded uh, team support. You add a lot of people to different product teams that you have. And then later, perhaps you, you start to see that you want to build these kind of supporting systems. So you can scale them or you can do the opposite, which is to start with a centralized system and, mm. and then later start to spill over, so to speak, in, into some kind of embedded uh, organization or hybrid organization. Do you have any preference there? Start with the centralized or start with embedded? I, I think <laughs> based on mistakes I've made myself, I think it makes sense to start with the centralized term first until you get some level of maturity uh, and then scale out. But you don't, you don't have to make everything perfect. It, it's, uh, again, finding some kind of balance. But I mean, if you have no idea about what are the core KPIs and core metrics that you're working with. You have no documentation on the data setup. Uh, it tends to be a bit chaotic. Uh, there, there is some governance that I think is best at least to have first. And I, I have made that mistake. Uh, good to go, go too soon. And also, I mean, if you have, it's also, I think, leadership and like employee satisfaction if you if you go into as a single data scientist into a team that isn't very mature in how to work with data, yeah. uh, it's easy to feel alienated in that exactly. setup as well. Yes. Yeah, and, I uh, understand that. that that's uh, that's a learning uh, that's quite quite recent uh, mm-hmm. as well. So I, I'm probably becoming a bit wiser every time. Well, you worked with Spotify, and so I and I can especially from those years uh, remember those times where. Yeah. If you had a single data analyst or something working in a product team and you have a product owner that is just thinking about, you know, the next iteration. Exactly. Uh, I think it's very important to have, how how should I frame this? And I mean, product teams that are accountable for business outcome rather than product features. Mm. Because if if you are accountable for business outcomes, it becomes sort of self preservation to to measure things and, and log things and learn things. Yeah, that's a good if point. If you only measured on producing features. Right, functionality. Then, that, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. then uh, then running an A-B test will uh, maybe add a week or so to time to market. And mm. uh, so, so I think it's very important to to really know what why are you building what you're building? Mm. What's the purpose? What's the reasoning? What are the sort of the hypothesis that you base it on? And Try to be really sort of true to yourself. I think that's a big, 
big gap. Uh, we can probably iterate back to that. Well, I'm very glad that you said that in that way and you <laughs> prefer to start in a centralized way. I think also that's the, the core thing to do. You need to have some critical mass to be able to do anything that you can later scale. Yeah. And I tried not to bias you in any way, but you chose the yeah the same thinking that I have. So very happy for that. Good. <laughs> so we don't have to start out with a fight. Yeah. Um, well, that's great. I think that's uh, actually a very important learning that a lot of companies haven't done. That you need some kind of critical mass to, to get things working properly. Otherwise, yeah. it just will be prototypes, and they will never really show off in any kind of business out outcome or positive outcome that you can measure. Exactly. Okay, that was a bit of a rant on uh, the line versus product organization, but it's an important topic, I think. I think so. I think it's one of the most critical ones. Yeah, I think it's a source of a lot of problems today. Mm. Yeah, especially on the data side. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, that was Scania <laughs> and some other <laughs> Plus companies. Some other places. Yeah. <laughs> what happened after Scania? Um, maybe I should sort of go through to just keep the red thread what happened in Scania. I think okay. after the trained program, I got the, the, because that's when I got into data, really. Mm -hmm. uh, I got an assignment to basically support the smaller market subsidiaries with the financial systems support mm -hmm. because they didn't have that. So they basically sort of reinvented the wheel every time right. there was a new CFO. Uh, so we looked at we basically benchmarked like how's the best way to structure the financial model based on the outputs that we wanted, like legal and fiscal reporting, management reporting, and group reporting. Uh, made a good information model, put it into a system, and then implemented that. So that was basically my job at that time, uh, going from country to country, to country implementing that. Mm. After a while, we found out that we had a lot of good information in the system, but we couldn't get it out in a good way. So that's mm -hmm. when my sort of data journey started. I just had like, we need to solve this because the, the value of the accounting is not realized because we can't get the data out in a good way. Right, so that right. was when I got into actually just opening my laptop, finding a SQL database at that time, mm -hmm. building some views to just translate column names and table names. Yeah. Um, then we've, found some problems, so it developed into data warehouse, and then it was like all up cubed and reporting layers, and I had to build a user interface to manage the thing, because I was sort of, every beginning of every year, I was hassled by all the companies that needed support to sort of roll the years. So I had to learn coding yeah. uh, to figure that out. Cool. So that was like my the starting point of my data journey, um, yeah, really building, building a data warehouse before even sort of really having the notion of that it's called like that, mm. more solving a problem. And what year was this approximately? Uh, this was um, training program started in 99, yeah. and then uh, was going all the way through end of 2000. So I think this was like between 2001 and 2005. I guess data warehousing wasn't a concept at that time. It at sort all. of was, but it was, was quite it? rudimentary. It was yeah. uh, like uh, Microsoft stack that we had, uh, tools were called differently. Mm. Cognos was the coolest uh, BI tool mm. out okay. there. Uh, so, um, yeah, but it is some, some good learnings. It was a good school. Uh, mm. Finance is really a good data warehousing school because mm. it's like a star schema mm. as it is. And uh, yes. transactions are immutable. You cannot change a transaction. You can only right. counter a transaction. Yeah, so it's like true. in a... Uh, event log in yeah, a more yeah, modern right. system. So it, it has a lot of good. I haven't thought about that, but that's true. I mean, the finance has a lot of like similarities to the kind of OLAP um, 
kind of structure yeah, that exactly. type of data structures and also know. like write ahead logging as well that it's yeah. immutable structures mm-hmm. append only so it was quite quite good and mm-hmm. uh, then uh, then i moved on to actually try to to actually work with what i studied so i took a business controller job mm-hmm. um, found that i i enjoyed the sort of more strategic things of that setting mm-hmm. up like proper KPIs, measuring things, but also Is like still at that, at Scotland. No, or? it was, um, Mark and Mimash, oh, okay. um, mm-hmm. um, um, industrial company selling marking equipment. Marking? What does that It's mean? like this barcodes oh. and the uh, best before dates and, okay. uh, oh, right. laser engraving in the like absolute vodka bottles yeah, for yeah, counter yeah. For, forfeiting oh, things. Okay. So cool. like a very hidden product, but we had all the major uh, industrial firms uh, mm-hmm. in, in Sweden, basically. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of time trying to figure out, uh, I mean, first the finances and then I did a post sales work. So I was off the sales manager mm-hmm. trying to just sort of what happens after you buy an equipment? How do you, mm-hmm. how do you make it run? How do you finance it? Uh, how do you solve things if they break? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was the first sort of management job. Mm-hmm. But after that, I had like the first big career crisis where I felt like, okay, I don't want to do finance. Uh, I don't want to work with after sales. Mm. I kind of like numbers and I kind of like data and IT and I'm always sort of, I always end up in IT projects because I, I think, <laughs> at least I hope it's because I am fairly adept at that and have an easy way to learn. But then I started working in BI and I've mm. s- sort of BI analytics and I've stayed there since so that was 2010. 2010 and that was yeah right was that when you were at sida as well or was that later or? that was a bit later actually okay uh, this was at xopen systems yeah. small uh, small bi slash performance management firm like we were consultancy like, or what type of uh, product company and consultancy so okay. they had a small basically from the beginning a small just excel plugin uh, that had a big benefit. So it basically was like you could write SQL queries in from Excel mm. to database connection. And then you can uh, could like pinpoint information where it goes into, um, into for example, an uh, income statement or mm. balance sheet. So it was a uh, quite effective solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, so um, yeah, mm. started there as a consultant. Uh, did some solution architecture and pre-sales. Mm. Uh, so kind of like having discussions with customers about solving problems. Mm. Um, and then I ended up product manager for, for the company as well. Mm. Probably because the, the product manager, when he quit, I, I was the person that was nagging him all the time about things, new things we needed. So what does the product manager do? Trying to set the strategic direction and market positioning of the product, working with uh, pricing and then basically trying to figure out what the users need, uh, somehow prioritize that, and describe it into features and try to deliver product it. features that they want yeah. to build in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And, um, Perhaps we should skip ahead a bit here as well, um, or it would be fun to move into Svenska Spel, etc. Or is it anything you want to mention before we move into that? 
No, maybe not. Um, I think the year at Connecta as a management consultant was a bit of a sabbatical mm. for trying to figure out what to do. So I can skip by that quite quickly. But that was that was when I was really getting into advanced analytics. Okay. And and also I think the embryo of our company. Mm. Uh, I met one of the, the our co-founders mm. at Connecta, where we basically tried to connect the sort of the management consulting part of the business with actually delivering solutions. Mm. Because I, I think we saw at that time that I mean, I, I had an interest in numbers and data from a long time. Um, but when sort of everything started going digital and uh, mobiles were coming and social networks were coming, mm. it just made sense. Like now we have so much data. Data is really the sort of the voice of the customer in many cases. Yeah. So it just made perfect sense looking at sort of what, what the big tech companies were doing and how, how they were solving problems of dealing with that mm. data. Mm. So I was like really, really interested in, um, in big data, started running Hadoop clusters at home and uh, learning advanced analytics really? despite my uh, finance background. While still at the connector or? Yeah. Mm. And for people that don't, um, I mean, Hadoop perhaps is not as prevalent as, as it was at those times. Um, what is Hadoop and, and why did you, what's the, the advantage you can get with having that type of cluster? I think there are multiple things. Um, I remember a customer meeting uh, where I actually just did a whiteboard exercise where I equal like traditional databases with, you know, one of those child toys mm. with, with the lid on where you can put like different shaped boxes in. Mm. That's like a typical database. And if you run out of space, it's really hard to grow. You basically need to buy a bigger box. Yeah. And also if you, oh, sorry. Also, if you get something that is not shaped according to what the lid allows, yeah. you can't store it. Yeah. So, Hard to scale and very rigid, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So being able to just add nodes to a cluster to handle volume is, uh, is one interesting aspect. And also being able to, to, um, to apply some schema, schema on read, or at least be able to store, uh, files that are not always as you expect to receive them mm -hmm. is powerful. And then I can argue now that maybe it was taken too far with data lakes without schemas that it created a lot of problems, but yeah. that's of course one learning. Yeah. Um, so that is why I got interested in Svenska Spel because they were one right. of the, I think earlier at least, sort of main mainstream players on Hadoop. I think, yeah. I mean, Spotify and King obviously had it since mm -hmm. a couple of years. Um, but I think sort of Svenska Spel and Klarna was sort of about the same same stage. Mm. So I got the data architect position at Svenska Spel, which I found right. quite interesting. Not that I'm like super interested in betting and gambling, but it's, um, it's a lot of sort of famous brands that are mm. well known. They have a huge customer base. Lots of data, I guess as well. Yeah. Tons of data yeah. and also both sort of digital data, but also like point of sales data and casino right. data. It's like right. a very very interesting business and a lot of touch points and um, mm. and um, uh, how should I say 
business areas. Yeah. Can you mention some of the tech stack that you were having at Svenska Spel? Yes, we had we had a Hadoop mm -hmm. um, solution. Uh, later on, going with uh, Hortonworks, which was the distribution. Oh. Yeah. Um, we had. No, I forgot the name. We, we had one streaming solution because Svenska Spel was actually quite cool in that case. And I don't think people realized that. I didn't, for sure, because I thought it was a state-owned company. They're probably yeah. not that advanced. But they had, since 2006, I think, mm. uh, basically an in-house Kafka solution that they built. Oh, that they built themselves? Yeah. So oh. they stored um, an immutable event log mm. from 2006. So when I went in there in 2014, we could just sort of load eight years of data immutable on event level into the system, uh -huh. which is quite cool. So, but that was built on C sharp and um, uh, we needed tr to translate it. So I had a translator feeding into Kafka, mm -hmm. Kafka loading it into, if I remember correctly now, both HDFS, which mm -hmm. is a distributed file system. On Hadoop, yeah. Yeah, and also into... Um, Solar actually oh. to index that. I think we actually asked why uh, when we met first time, but that was to basically have a real time transaction index so we can search on. If we get a support ticket, we can search on an event or a customer, and we get mm. the real time data. And yes, we'll elaborate a bit more because you have uh, so much knowledge about different open source tools as well. And, and Kafka, of course, is more of a like a message queue. Or how would you describe Kafka? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, um, so real-time streaming. I don't know, event bus maybe. Yeah, could be something. But it's um, you can send uh, events to it, and you can subscribe for different topics, basically. Yeah, exactly. Right? Sub subscribe, uh, publish, subs subscribe. Yeah, uh, up, as Google call it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but also that you can retain the data as well, so you can you can consume it multiple times, mm. and if if a consumer goes down. The data sort of just builds up in Kafka, so you don't yeah. drop data. You have like it's allowance a safe to up way uh, to stream events. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm I'm not a Kafka expert by any means, but it's a great system. Yeah. A bit complex to operate as the rest of the Hadoop stack, but yeah, yeah Hadoop. It's much Hadoop. much simpler today. Yeah, but then you mentioned Solar as well, and I guess another uh, alternative is Elasticsearch as well. Yeah. Do you have any preference or thoughts about you know Solar versus Elasticsearch? Mm, not really. Um, I haven't sort of used that that much. Um, I have done some tests, and I think Elasticsearch is super user friendly to set up. Mm -hmm. I haven't worked that much in production, but but we use that too. Mm -hmm. I think the how would you describe what Solar and Elasticsearch does? Um, Full text uh, indexing or yeah, exactly indexing and um, like searching out, uh, fetching individual records really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think we had some. We used it to serve content mm -hmm. uh, to the websites, so basically everything that had like really low latency requirement mm -hmm. were basically in uh, Elastic or Solar in that case. Mm -hmm. um, Actually, I, I, I made a mistake. We had, before we sent it to HDFS, we actually stored it in HBase as well. Oh, HBase. Oof, I have a lot of memories of that as well. <laughs> I guess HBase and Cassandra are two like a, a similar kind of solutions there as well, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. We had Cassandra was uh, the main, main tool outside the data stack. Mm -hmm. 
But I think HBase was part of the, the distribution. So that was the way we went. That was in place before I joined. So I still have some horrible memories of HBase when working with this uh, Price Runner founder's second endeavor, which was called Test Freaks. Um, they we had like we were launched throughout the world in yeah. China and US and, and like 30 different countries. And then at one point, HBase just crashed. Yeah. And we couldn't recover it. Oh, <laughs> and, really? And it was a large number of nodes with so much data into it. And we were trying to hack the source code to, to try to get around the, the problems we had. We called every kind of expert, someone from Germany that's supposed to help us. We're sitting there like day and night for two days trying to sell, solve it. Mm. And finally we got it back, but it, it was oh, horrific times. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice when it's working, but when it actually breaks, oof, Jesus Christ, yeah. trying to solve it. I didn't experience that, luckily. And, and also we had, the, the good thing was that we, we had what was called, um, let me see, um, if I remember, no, never mind. But I mean, we had, we had a persistent data store in the back, so which, which was also the super nice thing, because if, if we wanted to do a change that was complex, we could basically truncate the whole data platform and just re rerun it. Mm -hmm. uh, since it was immutable, we didn't have any state to consider, it was like... Super nice. It was basically a set of um, a set of lines of code that we just needed to run. So, if Solar and Elasticsearch is is more for for one, like uh, working with text and indexing that and finding stuff very quickly and in real time, being able to retrieve things. How, how would you describe HBase and Cassandra? What's their difference to perhaps perhaps uh, Solar and Elasticsearch? I mean, the way we used, um, I was a bit wrong before, but we stored the data in HBase, but then right. we had to retrieve it by key. So oh, we right. couldn't really search for it. So that was what we used Sola for. But uh, key, couldn't you use the HBase if you have the key? Yeah, exactly. If, if we had a key. Yeah. But the key was uh, just some, I, I might be off now. I have to yeah. talk to maybe okay. Johan Pettersson that helped us out. He built yeah. that. Yeah. But I think the key was not, it didn't have any business meaning. Oh. It was just a key with some salt to get the distribution of the data. Mm. So to, to figure out where it was, we needed yeah. to use solar to actually fetch the right things. Oh, I see. Interesting. Cool. And, and of course, Cassandra is a big part of the uh, Spotify tech stack as well. Mm. And, uh, I can imagine. But I mean, it's super fast. If you know, if you know the key to the record that you want, it's like amazing. Yeah. Then we can have a lot of columns for a single key and uh, that mm. row can have families of columns and yeah. so much more. So it's more of a, like a no SQL kind of quick retrieval of key values in some way. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Yeah. So many interesting stuff. Uh, we're growing a bit technical here because Henrik is not here, so we can actually go a bit techy. So that's kind of fun, at least for me. Uh, with, some, with some limitations. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, that's great. Okay. So Svenska Spel, and they had a huge amount of data. And, and what were like the, the main products or, or type of tooling that you were working with there? We had multiple things it was it was quite exciting because it was in the early days what, what we wanted to do i mean setting up the, the actual big data stack that was mainly in place when i joined so what, what i tried to do was basically replace the current data warehouse structure that has mm. had become outdated both from a technical perspective and also um from a business perspective, it mm. wasn't relevant anymore. It was like a new company mm. uh, putting putting the the customers in center instead of like uh, the stores and uh, 
um, retail site. So I think basically my, I think it was like the fourth week at work. I had to do a presentation for, for the CIO telling them, telling him that we need to rebuild the whole thing. So that was, uh, I'm quite impressed with my manager at that time, Christian, that actually allowed me to, to come with those conclusions. Yeah. But I think it was like a fairly strong case that that was the most effective solution. Mm -hmm. So then we tried to figure out like how to run that. And we had some consultants in as well. So basically going with uh, a data lake in HDFS with the Hive uh, data warehouse on, on top to mm -hmm. uh, try to sort of figure out where the data is. So we, we had like one, one transformation layer there, mm -hmm. but then taking it to um, to more data warehouse structure that was needed. We um, did it in many iterations. First, we we were looking at different ways of doing it. Uh, I was a big proponent of Spark at that time, huh? but we ended up. What with, year was this, by the way? Sorry, which year was this? Uh, I think 2014. This was. Yeah. It yeah. was. Um, and that's kind of early. Spark was just at the first versions. Was it even one point over at that time? Um, I don't remember, but I know what really made me hook into it. We, we mm -hmm. tried a lot of things. We tried like cascading. Mm -hmm. We tried scrolling, which is a Scala DSL on yeah. top of cascading. So we had like a lot of communication with Twitter to try to make it work. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, we looked also. Uh, we had a lot. Of, I don't all. I don't remember all the tools and frameworks that was. That was the problem back then that there were so many frameworks and so many yeah. ways to solve the same problem. It, yeah. it wasn't really like a clear leader, yeah. but I, I hooked on to Spark when they released the data frame API. Right. From RDDs back to exactly. Data frames. Uh, because RDDs is like still, I'm lazy. I, I like to have like a sort of type data set where I can call mm -hmm. columns by yeah. name. It makes and it's similar to pandas and much more familiar yeah. and to and, R as well. Guess. And it had also like the, the brilliant function that I love the most mm -hmm. that's dot to pandas no. function right. where you can actually like, mm -hmm. you can work, which is also what, what I presented on the data innovation summit. So we can basically oh, put, nice. uh, we put a Jupyter tool on top so we can actually run from one interface code, fetching data from uh, Kafka, HBase, the data lake, Hive, or external other data warehouses with one coding framework. And we can process the data on the cluster. So that was Spark, in, and you could connect to all these kind of data, data sources? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And when we had massaged the data, because one early conclusion as well is you don't want to work with big data unless you have to. You, right. you want to get to yes. small data yeah. as quickly as possible. And then we could take it offline with the two pandas with just one function. Yeah. And then you can go with all the scikit-learn and uh, mm. uh, matplotlib or whatever you want to do with the data. Uh, so that was pretty amazing. Mm. I think really cool at that time, really yes. quite obsolete now. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure if Spotify, you know, I was a big proponent for Spark as well at, at that time. And, um, but no one at Spotify really was actually. No, I mean, now it's uh, Sayo. Yeah, like exactly. Sayo. And on Dataflow, which is Google's managed exactly. thing instead of, of Spark. Um, cool. Um, so once again, a lot of different tooling here. And, and that is more for, I guess, like big data processing in some way. So Spark scolding, cascading, uh, I guess Dataflow these days would be counted a flint 
Flink, I guess. Yeah. Have you ever tried Flink, by the way? Or? We we did try it. We had um, uh, we used Flink a lot for uh, for the streaming ingestion mm. from Kafka. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't run it myself. That was uh, the other data engineers that did it. I, I actually switched after a while from from the data team to the data science team because mm. uh, we found that that's where the sort of pain point moved. Mm. Um, and also, I was very curious to actually try out building things and crunching logs and mm. trying to build some models. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. So, but can you give some examples? What did you try to build in Svenska Spel? So, you used a lot of tooling here for processing, you know, big data with you know HBase and, and uh, Hive. And Hive, I guess, is just you know trying to map an SQL query to some Hadoop job that can run. Yeah. And then you have, you know, all the Spark scoldings and whatnot. But for what purpose? What Mainly reporting. Okay, reporting purposes. Yeah. We did some uh, some work to try to enable basically on, on... We had some models, like propensity models and cluster models that were running on SAS mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah. How would you describe SAS, by the way? Um, I don't know. I'll probably just make a lot of enemies, <laughs> I guess. But uh, to me, it felt like... Uh, at that time, I, I was a strong open source proponent. I felt yeah. that this will be the future. Uh, SAS will not be the future. Python or R will be what wins. Yeah. Uh, so I, that is why we, because we had a situation as well at Svenska Spel where we had uh, log and offentlig upphandling. Mm. I guess you know all about that. <laughs> Unfortunately. Uh, so either we had to buy more advanced tooling on SAS, mm. which would take a lot of pains and admin work and be quite expensive. Or we could just deploy Jupyter, which mm. we actually did just as a skunk work, basically from right. Monday to Thursday. We oh, set yeah. up a full uh, working solution with Jupyter, Jupyter Hub, spawning Docker containers with uh, really? like local instances and attaching all the frameworks that we needed on it. So it was quite just a skunk work with the DevOps in uh, Gotland. So. <laughs> DevOps running on uh, yeah, so I, so I think That's basically I, I just wanted to show them that this is how fast we can run yeah. if we want to, yeah. uh, rather than sort of going into a nine-month procurement cycle. Mm. So awesome. um, so with that then we did some things, but it, we didn't really get any sort of spark jobs into production before I then left for new new ventures. So what were the main, main tools you used for reporting then? Was that HBase and Hive stuff or what was the... We went from a stack where we had uh, files loaded into Oracle going into Cognos yeah. uh, and Microsoft Analysis Services Cubes. Oh, really? uh, and then we went from Hadoop. We still had Cognos. We actually ex- uh, changed that to Exasol mm-hmm. a while after I left mm-hmm. and Tableau on top. Tableau as well. Okay. Um, yeah, that sounds like a good stack. So it's is rather very fast, right? Yeah, I, I never got to try it, but it's um, it solved. I mean, w- we did Oracle Exadata is good for transformation jobs, mm-hmm. but as we offloaded that to Hadoop mm-hmm. uh, and did it with Hive and Hive QL, uh, the job of the data warehouse was to uh, basically answer aggregation queries as quickly mm-hmm. as possible. And then Oracle wasn't the best tool anymore. Mm. So that is why we started looking at Exasol because then we could um, basically cutting some costs even going with a tool that is that does the new job much faster. 
And a report, can you just give an example of what kind of reporting did you need to do? Was it for your own purposes internally or did reporting to uh, some other governments or what was well, that? I mean, we had some fraud things as well yeah. um, that I, of course, can't go into in detail. But I mean, uh, match fixing, for example, is, uh, is one mm. thing that pops up. There are other things that we need to figure out. Mm. Um, we were looking also at the sort of responsible gambling side uh, of things. So if someone gets like addicted to gambling, you want to find that somehow. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then it was very much business reporting. Yeah. I think the, the first case we looked at was the, the Vegas machines, mm. which was also quite a lot of, at that time, at least transactions, because basically every spin on every machine was streamed into a backend and then fed into Kafka. Uh -huh. So it was uh, billions of events uh, we tried to sort of parse out and and report on. And Vegas machines, you basically means this kind of uh, bandit uh, or yeah. one arm bandit kind of machines. Exactly. Is it true that they are used mainly to launder money, you think? Or some people claim so? I have no idea. I don't know either. But maybe. I mean, it's uh, the payout is quite good, so you can spin a few times and still retain some money. Yeah. Okay, very interesting. A lot of uh, technical talk there. And um, we miss Henrik, by the way. Love you, Henrik. Uh, <laughs> hope you are not getting too irritated with us speaking tech all the time. Uh, but then, okay, Svenska Spel. And then you took another leap, so to speak. What was the next move? The next move was my second career crisis, um, <laughs> where I basically tried to figure out, do I want to go on as a data scientist? Mm -hmm. um, and to me, I, I thought that was really fun. I, I love that type of work. But at the same time, I realized that I don't have maybe the mathematical background that could be useful. So it was a bit of a pain point. I had to spend a lot of time trying to sort of freshen up like linear algebra and stuff like that to be, be able to really read documentation properly and understand mm. like the, uh, to get a sort of what's called like an, um, uh, feeling for how the models, models actually worked. Like, uh, what's that called? Um, Intuition. For exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Um, so, and also it was like management because I'm quite generic and mm. has like decent technical knowledge, but also decent on under, in understanding business concepts and how the how value is created. And so, rather decent in being humble as well. <laughs> but okay. Uh, I mean, I, I leave it for others to judge. Um, no, but I've, of course, um, also confident in what I know and what yeah. I don't, um, obviously. But I actually applied for two jobs at that time. Uh, so I applied for one data science position at King. Oh, and a head of analytics at Cambi, which ah. is a sports betting yeah, yeah. company again. Yeah. So I went through like a really, I think it was like six or seven interviews mm. with King. Yeah. Uh, met some great people um, mm. um, where we talked mainly computer games, I think. Mm. Um, so it was nice. But in the end, did, I did you meet someone called Bjorn there. No, not Bjorn, okay. but uh, some other well-known Matte and yeah. uh, other people. Mm, cool. Um, so, but eventually they turned me down based mm. on that I was a bit weak on stats, mm. which they were totally right on. Mm. 
and they were asking me like, yeah, maybe you should be more like a business performance manager. So they sort of hinted me in that direction as well during the process, but I sort of stuck with the data science position. But then I got a job in Cambi instead as mm. head of analytics. Right. So they, that sort of, I outsourced that decision mm. and uh, I think it was the right one. Yeah, yeah, of course. And you were sitting very close to our Peltorian office as well uh, when we, Okay. When I, was, I mean, you were on, on the floor below, right? At Cambi? Yeah. At Wallengatan? Or is it called Wallengatan? It was before. I think they oh, moved okay. now. They to, moved. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Okay. So they were somewhere else at that time. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, so they were, they were neighbors to you, right? <clears throat> I remember when we met, uh, basically your office was near to the Adolf Frederick, uh, the church. Yeah. Right? So exactly. yeah. Peltarion is exactly behind the Adolf Frederick yeah, church. Yeah. It is. Okay. Yeah, yeah then it's, it's really close. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, just one floor below. Ah, cool. above. Yeah. Anyway, okay, so can we start perhaps, what does Kambi do? Kambi is, uh, they're developing and selling a sports book, mm -hmm. which is basically taking care of all sports betting practices, including uh, the, the user interface, uh, the event selection and pricing, and all the backend components mm -hmm. like risk management and uh, things like that. So, so what is the customer basically for Canby? Um, betting operators. Mm -hmm. It's actually the, the, uh, the starting point of Canby was that it was part of Unibet first. Ah, okay. Unibet saw that it's going to be extremely difficult to compete with Bet365 mm -hmm. that had uh, so much revenue. So they basically found that in order to compete on sports betting, we need to share the development costs because it's quite expensive mm -hmm. and very sort of labor and compute intensive to mm. work with sports betting. Right. So they, they created Cambi uh, instead. So Unibet mm. was like obviously the first customer and then it was multiple other ones. Mm. Like uh, I think now, Otegea, okay. um, um, for example, is uh, one of right. the more recent, well, not more recent, but they joined uh, the platform when Sweden was deregulating the betting market. Mm. Mm. Okay, so but but did you provide the user interface as well? You said or yeah, yes, in okay. different layers, either fully managed where you basically could like theme it into your colors, and then it was oh, the same. Right, but also with uh, some uh, um, customization things or also SDKs and APIs, right. so you can basically like select how much you want to customize that if you want to go fully turnkey solution or mm. if you want to sort of customize it in different ways. But you still hosted the service or could they actually take that like in an open source fashion and, and with the SDKs run it and host it themselves or? Um, I mean, they, if, they, if they built front end components, I guess they hosted that themselves, mm -hmm. but, but like the backend and infrastructure was uh, centralized. Yeah. Okay. And you ran on some cloud or was it? On-prem. On-prem. Why is that, do you think? Um, compliance and regulatory reasons. Right, right. Uh, I know that now that I've heard that they've gone partly cloud mm. at least. Mm. Uh, I think at least for the data anal analytics stack. Mm. I'm not fully updated. I had lunch with our data architect uh, a few months back. Mm. Interesting. Okay, cool. And perhaps you can mention also a bit about the tech stack that Cambi was making use of. I guess it has to be a lot of real-time stuff there, right? Yes. Um, it, it was a lot of real-time, but it was... At, at my time, it was very much a point to point. So we had one data, uh, data uh, 
initiative where we looked at uh, going with Kafka and mm -hmm. Hadoop as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I didn't see that through, uh, mm -hmm. but that was the plan. Mm -hmm. um, but at this time we had um, basically a data warehouse on Vertica and mm -hmm. then um, I think Pentaho as, as a BI interface mm -hmm. at that time, which was uh, a bit slow, didn't really scale. So mm -hmm. so we did some changes. Vertica, um, isn't that like super expensive as well? Um, don't know. I wasn't involved in that okay. those decisions. But I, I think they're still running Vertica in the cloud. I know they like it and find it really performant and functioning well. Mm -hmm. But that's uh, probably in that case a person I should nominate for another call. <laughs> I was I was purely on the uh, on the analytics team there. Right. And what did the analytics team do? We did uh, lots of things. We had um, not too much of reporting that was done mm -hmm. in the data team. We're doing a lot of data analytics, uh, primarily uh, for different ways. So we had uh, a centralized team where we had a couple of data scientists and we had analysts that were deployed into various parts of, of, the, of the product. So we had um, analysts working with understanding front-end and client behavior, uh, user behavior. We had... Um, uh, team in London as well that we're doing more of the sort of sports book, like trying to figure out what happened in this football game between these minutes in the match. Mm -hmm. um, after the fact or in real time? No, after the fact. We okay. had a lot of real time things as well for yeah. like detecting arbitrage. Uh, right. I mean, it, it's a super data driven business, mm. uh, which is also, I think, why I found it a good school. Mm. A good way to sort of learn the ropes because mm. you need you need to do a lot of decisions in real time that are analytically involved, um, and I guess impossible for a human to do. Yeah, yeah, right? totally impossible. Mm. So I mean, just calculating odds in a live betting mm. scenario is. Uh, we didn't use machine learning, but we had uh, a quantum that yeah. were running uh, stats algorithms, just counting the probabilities of yeah. everything, and then updating. With the new state recalculating, mm. so uh, it's quite interesting, and it's uh, like the whole business is about getting your probabilities right. Mm. Uh, if you do that, you have a place. If you get your probabilities wrong, you're out of the business more mm. or less. Mm. So it's um, it's a lot of focus on trying to capture things as they happen, but also understanding them afterwards um, and learning from them. Mm. So a lot of the f things we found, we could feed back to like the quantum and uh, mm. uh, give feedback to different traders and right. things yeah. like that. Cool. Awesome. And um, yeah, should we move to NodeNet perhaps? Uh, what made you still take the jump to, to NodeNet? It was a um, couple of things. Um, it, it was, um, I don't know, sort of an interesting business to go into. I think I've never been particularly fond of, fond of uh, finance as a domain. I'm not really interested. Mm -hmm. And I find it also a bit like sports betting that you, you sort of have to be a bit of a nerd to, um, to get the value out of it. You're sort of served with a million options and mm -hmm. then you have to figure out what's... Uh, what's the right way to, to approach it. Yeah. So I, I think it was... They were bought from um, by Nordic Capital and taken off the stock market to try to 
rebuild the company, focusing mm. on uh, data, AI, and uh, user experience. Mm. So it was um, quite um, quite an interesting setup where it was really going into scaling scaling the analytics and data science team really quickly, um, and try to get value out and support it, mm. uh, support the business uh, um, with creating new products like RoboSave, um, an algorithmic sort of RoboSave, so that's trying to, is it for stocks or for funds or? Uh, for funds, it's basically a, an uh, auto trading fund, yeah. like uh, like Avanza's as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. And I'm trying to see the time is flying away here a <laughs> bit as well. So, so I'm trying to move a bit quickly ahead. And, uh, and anything that you'd like to share, you know, or some main highlights from your time in NodeNet that you'd like to share? I don't know. I think it was it was uh, it was challenging. I, I think we had. I don't know if we had any. We did some recommendation systems, but then it was a bit sort of trying to find the path of how to build things. So what I think happened was, I mean, first I I, I um, sort of left for like personal reasons, but it was we delivered some recommendation systems, we started to go with some sort of data-driven CRM campaigns mm -hmm. that actually created some values. Um, but then it was realization that we had to like rebuild the architecture and uh, prioritize certain things. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was, um, um, I think, the right decision for the mm -hmm. company, but it sort of postponed the data journey uh, a bit. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And and then you move in, into another very interesting company as well, Epidemic Sound. Yes. Right. Um, can you just quickly elaborate? What does Epidemic Sound do? Epidemic Sound provides and sells uh, access to uh, royalty-free music, mm. more or less. So basically, if you want to use music for something, um, they have the tool for it. Mm. And I think the premise was uh, parts of the founders were coming from the TV industry uh, where they found that producing TV shows like Sol Sidan, I think, is the creation from of those guys. Mm. It's easy until you come to putting sound and music on top of it because mm. then you get to deal with a lot of lawyers. You have to pay extensive amounts of money to do it. And basically a big hassle. So that was like the problem definition from that mm. perspective. Um, the other was that it's sort of music, music industry income is not like fairly distributed. It's very centralized around the big artists mm -hmm. um, from the record labels and somehow dilute, diluted by a lot of collecting agencies and yes. royalty holders and lawyers and stuff. Yeah. So the, the other founders came from the music industry where they wanted to, um, uh, allow for a way for musicians to make a living living from their music. Mm. So they started that and basically the, the whole company is like more of sort of a platform company where it's curating somehow like Netflix. So they, they buy music from musicians. Mm. Uh, they buy also the license, pay up, pay for it up front and then they uh, uh, sell the licenses to, to um, TV broadcasters. Um, it's one of the biggest like provider of audio for uh, YouTube videos as well. If I yeah, I heard someone mentioning internally that 
around 20% of YouTube mm. is epidemic sound music, yeah. which is uh, enormous. It's enormous. And I think it is one of the biggest then. Yeah, I think it is the, the biggest, yeah. um, at least for, yeah, for, for that type of quality music. Did you do that because you have a personal interest in music as well yourself or? <clears throat> or partly, mm? partly. Uh, it's, it's, uh, music is a very positive thing. Mm. It's like coming from the, the betting industry where people have a lot of mixed, mixed opinions and feelings. Uh, I mean, nobody dislikes music. Mm. So it's like a very positive thing to, to work with. Mm. And also I found it really an interesting company to go into the, the, the business model is amazing. It was scaling extremely fast. Yeah. It was a chance to build up a new team from scratch yeah. uh, and basically apply sort of all learnings on, on a blank slate and really right. build it up. So super fun. Yeah. Can I imagine? And uh, yeah, scaling fast. I mean, it became the, the latest unicorn last year, I think. Oh, they are a unicorn now. Yeah. Okay. So one billion dollars worth. Yes. And there are, how many employees do you think they have right now? I think right, yeah, I think four or 500 now. Mm. I think when I joined it was like 150. Mm. So we sort of outgrew our office, had to move to another mm -hmm. one. Um, Still in Södermalm or? Is yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, Fartebjörn right now. Oh, nice. Södermalm is nice. It is. Um, awesome. And then um, you took a big leap suddenly and, and uh, well, you created your own company, right? Or was this something that already existed when you moved to DataAge? It already existed. I, ah. I was sort of invited to join quite early, but then I felt that Epidemic Sound would be a good experience to, yeah. um, to do. But then I joined uh, in October last year, mm. which is, um, I don't know, I've been... I wanted to do something, um, something different. Going into another head of analytics job felt like mm. not that challenging or, I mean, of course it's cha challenging, but not in the same way that I wanted. Mm. So having my own company or sort of being a bit more independent and trying those wings, uh, I've been sort of a dream since I, I was a kid. I always said that I would have my own company when, when I get old, mm. uh, and I guess I'm old, so mm. it was time. We're all still 27, I think. Yeah, uh, mentally. Yes, mentally. Um, okay, so okay, quickly describe what is data age and what is their speciality potentially. Yes, um, we have. I think we're based on like our situation awareness was basically. I mean, first of all, there is a lot of value in working with data. Mm. Uh, it, it's it's uh, it's proven over and over in many places. So that's the first one. The second one is that we see also supported by a lot of like academic studies and so on that a lot of companies are investing heavily into data and analytics and AI. However, quite few of companies say that they are successfully becoming data-driven or yes. establishing a data-driven culture. So there is a bit of a gap there. And that is what we try to focus on. Um, and sort of our experience and my experience has been that there is a gap in the market. There are a lot of management consultancies that, I mean, some of them are quite good at this, mm. but it's not really the main core business. Mm. Uh, and on the other hand, there is a lot of companies providing tech services like data or analytics. Mm. 
But there is a gap between those two, from which was also the realization at Connecta where we had a management consulting team delivering PowerPoints. And then it was up to the customer to figure out how, how do we make this happen mm. for real. Mm. So that is basically what we want to do to have part of the company. I mean, there is a strong management consulting background to really understand the business sense of things. In data, you mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have uh, like really strong competences in analytics and data science and in data as well. Mm-hmm. So we think that with those abilities to have the data in place, have the understanding and the analytics in place, but also figuring out how to act on it and how to actually create value from it. That, that is what we try, uh, try to do. Mm-hmm. But it's not a product company, it's mainly a consultancy company? or Pure consultancy right pure. now. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, we will say it's, it's, uh, it's something that is on the table maybe, but mm-hmm. also I think we, we try to right now be very agnostic from platforms. So we don't have any technical partnerships um, or anything like that to mm-hmm. just be able to say with like high integrity, what is best for the client right now. How many people are working at DataEdge right now? Uh, right now we're 10 mm-hmm. and we have one person coming in. So 11 right now. Cool. So we were growing from four to, no, from five to 10 last year. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we can continue growing mm. this year as well. And I know you've been working with a lot of very um, well-known companies as well at that time uh, already, like Spotify and Vault, etc. Um, anything that you, we shouldn't go through everything, but, but uh, is there some part of those that you would like to focus on or give some example of what you have worked with uh, while at DataEdge? Mm. I've been, I mean, that's one benefit of being a consultant as well. You get yeah. to try out different exactly. things. So, I mean, I've been your doing... diversity and, and, you know, breadth of knowledge there, I think is you know, far few people have the same kind of understanding in a more holistic sense, I think. No, but I, I think that's, of course, what I say is my strength as well. Then uh, on the individual parts, there are experts that are much better, but, but I have a fairly good, like holistic perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. so, I mean, I've been doing everything from head of data for, for Trustly, um, then um, Head of Product Insights uh, for Spotify and Soundtrap, the Soundtrap team. Um, and now Head of Analytics for Fishbrain, which is also with my former boss from Epidemic, mm. who's going in there. Um, oh, yeah, okay. And uh, more just strategic advisory for, for Vault mm. uh, in the, one, of the, one of the companies in Equity Ventures portfolio. Mm. So it, it's quite quite fun to be able to work on like different levels uh, yeah, from very strategic nice. matters to hands-on things mm. to a sense. If you still were to try to mention some examples, some highlights, something perhaps that made you a bit surprised when you started working with some company of those that you worked with, anything that you can think of, this was a bit surprising from a positive or negative point of view. Um, I would say one realization that I've made, at least with the, I mean, quite quite a red thread the last few years is that I've been working with uh, scale-ups quite a lot. And I think uh, it's quite interesting how how similar the the maturity journeys are. Mm. Most companies follow like the same pattern pretty much from from the startup phase to the scale-up phase to more mature phase and sort of becoming data-driven. I I find that quite 
interesting and uh, mm. um, somehow rewarding, even, even though the business models can differ and the environments can differ. It's um, surprisingly similar. Okay, but but let's try to elaborate a bit more on that. So, given your experience in a number of companies, what is that journey like? You know, how, how do you become more data driven? Can you just give some kind of, I guess, best practices in in how to take that journey in the right way? Yes, I, I can give it a try. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay. I think, I mean, starting out, I would say, I mean, as we touched on the beginning of the talk, like having a centralized setup where right. you focus on getting the basics in place, just getting the data in from the right sources, uh, sort of trying to get an understanding of what actually matters and what's mm-hmm. important. Basically from getting uh, the basic reports in place to understanding your your metrics and uh, like defining the outcomes that is relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think that, like the first thing, splitting up data into tech and uh, skipping BI or analytics, going later into a hybrid mm. hybrid model when basically when you get too much of a disconnect between the central team and you start losing context of what's happening in the business. Mm. And I think it's like, as, as you mentioned yourself, like there are two ways, like two generic ways to approach um, a scaling problem. Either you can apply like command and control to mm. take more decisions top down, or you when need you to say command and control. I'm thinking about completely different things these days. But okay, please. Yeah, okay. yeah. maybe we should keep <laughs> <laughs> it at that. It's okay. yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but um, I, I think it's 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 not a scalable way. Mm. It's a way to sort of force alignment, but it it's probably doesn't work. Also, I guess in real yeah. life. Um, so finding a way to align with like having clear understanding of where we're heading and like how to align the teams. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's normal. I think it's, it's both Epidemic and Spotify that became quite clear. I mean, we had a clear idea about what was important, like well, what is the most important metric. So, so the understanding on. of being data driven and the values for, for doing so was clear, you would say, for those companies as well? I think it became clear. Uh, it's it's of course an ongoing work, mm-hmm. um, but understanding what are the outcomes that you're aiming at, I think, is really important. And I think that's a big a bit of a divider. I think, which is also supported in literature, that there is often a gap between uh, the top management of a company that wants to have some kind of impact, often measured in financial terms, yeah. and the rest of the company is managed on like resources, people or money, mm. activities or output. Mm. And there is a disconnect between producing something and creating value. Right. And I think there is somehow an assumption that as long as we build things, mm. we create value. Yeah. And I think that is not necessarily true. And I think a lot of support also from literature states that maybe 60% of what a product team does is waste. Mm. So assuming, assuming value is very dangerous, I think. So I think it's good to, to be informed, take informed bets because mm. you need to deal with uncertainty. You can never go away from uncertainty because then sort of you have to do nothing. Yeah. Um, but also trying to prove, I mean, if, even if you take a decision based on assumption, you can still measure the impact mm. in clear terms and try to connect that. Mm-hmm. But then becoming data-driven means 
so many different things, I think. And, and some people think data-driven just means BI, like, you know, trying to have the proper understanding of the business itself to, to make, you know, some decision on what to continue with. But it can also be more product-driven, I guess. So you actually start using it for, for the products you're building, or it can mm. be for the manufacturing if you have that, or the marketing or the sales and, and whatnot. Um, what, what do you think the right way to do this? If we speak about the data journey in general, um, should one is it is it correct to start with a BI journey to to make sure that you first have like a data driven way to understand how the business is going, or should you start also with the products or with the sales and marketing or or, or manufacturing or whatnot logistics and so many things? Um, I think that I mean you can't do both, but you cannot. You can do both in the sense that you don't have to like start with BI for the whole company. You can in a vertical go from nothing to mm. uh, maturing quite quickly, mm. and the rest of the company can still be, stay behind. I think that's valid, mm. um, but I don't think you can start with. And I think, I mean, it's it's a big problem. I mean, uh, a machine learning model or like an AI solution often tries to optimize towards some kind of parameter. Mm. If, if that parameter is not aligned with the outcomes that you want, yeah. you risk sort of automating yourself into the wrong direction. Right. So I think having a good notion of what are the key success factors and how do you measure them mm. is very important to be able to go advanced. Right. So, I mean, that's, I don't know what your perspective is. I mean, of course, there are some more... AI things that solves other problems. Mm. Uh, I mean, something that we speak a bit about here is the so-called analytical ladder, which means that some people claim that you know you need to do the full BI journey before you even move mm. into more advanced analytics or you start using data or AI for some product. And potentially that can be a bit dangerous if you need to take, you know, if you if you wait with using data and AI for other things than AI until you have, you know, everything perfectly working for yeah, yeah. the BI reporting kind of things. And, and uh, you know, moving stuff centrally, uh, if you take some kind of logging of the data that you have from whatever product or from the sales or from whatever part of the organization is good, of course, but it is actually quite a lot of work to get like a centralized like pipelines of all the data to have yeah. the proper KPIs that you mentioned for the business uh, reporting purpose. And sometimes to, to include something in a product can be completely separate from that kind of centralized BI reporting pipeline. And not even, you know, not even the same kind of logging or data that you're using. So one example that we, I know we, we spoke about from Peltorium was um, this kind of manufacturing company and, and they had the product team for some kind of machine that did some uh, floor grinding kind of things. And um, they just want to think for predictive maintenance kind of purposes. You know, we want to understand when it's breaking and you can as a domain expert understand very quickly that when I just hear the machine sounding a bit strange yeah you know as a human as an expert that now it's time to do some service otherwise it will break down yeah and and if you think about that and you can simply put a mic on it and collect some data and do some annotation and build a system or some ai model on that and, and you can have some predictive maintenance you know rather quickly and that has nothing to do with the bi like pipelines no. right 
Um, so I think one, at least that's one of the things that we, we've spoken a bit about. You know, BI is super useful, of course, but don't mistake that you have to do the full BI journey, at least, to mm. start using data and AI for other things. No. Do you agree? I agree. Mm. Uh, I think there is also, I mean, I... I tend to read quite a lot. Uh, one one thing that I, I think was like 2014 or something mm. that an MIT study basically like plotted like two journeys to being data driven. That mm. one that they call the the generalized path, which mm. is very much starting with the BI layer, yeah. adding some diagnostics on top, maybe some predictive, and then sort mm. of going up the ladder. Uh, and a specialized path where you can go in in verticals. And go very deep, right. while some other things might be lagging behind because it can, or because you just have to run fast. Mm. So we applied that when we set the strategy at Svenska Spel, where we said we found that some areas we need to be able to go more advanced. For example, marketing was way ahead of many of the other functions okay. uh, because there were uh, higher maturity and more business value mm. to be derived. So, so I very much think so as well that there is not like one way of doing it, but I think it's, you need to be quite clear with that, that the model you apply, do you have the context for it? Mm. And do you know that what you're optimizing for is actually a meaningful mm. metric? Right. Yeah. Optimizing for the wrong metric, you know, that can be super dangerous. And I think it happens quite a lot and it's right. a high risk, even if you do a lot of BI and analytics, because mm. it's, it's hard and the, the metric to optimize for is moving around as well, mm. because it's not like a stable thing over time. Yeah. And also I remember some discussions that, you know, if you do an A-B test that I'm sure you've done uh, so much during your years as well, but sometimes, you know, the data you use for doing that A-B test is, is perhaps flawed. It could be noisy. It could be that actually measure the wrong thing for the A-B test. Yeah. And, and, and one term or some terms we have used is, you know, data only versus data first. And, and what we meant with that was, you know, if you're data only, you only trust the data. Yeah. So if the A-B test says something, you don't even question it. You don't even think about, you know, is it because we are logging the wrong thing? Is some of the data missing? Is it noise in there? Is it some bug somewhere that will be causing this? Uh, and you just say, data says that, we don't care about anything else. And, and that's potentially super dangerous then. So data first means, of course, you want to then look at the data, but then you need to, to take the human into place to actually try to analyze, you know, what does this really mean? Yeah, definitely. Uh, right. <clears throat> no, but I think uh, at Cambi we were very deliberate to call it data informed because mm -hmm. data is one right. point for the, for the decision making. Mm -hmm. And there, there are many other, many other data points that you need to consider, not only like quant data. Mm -hmm. I mean, at Spotify, we had in the product insights team, we had also a lot of user researchers. Mm -hmm. Um, or, or a lot, but we had user researchers uh, yeah. as well to, to get also, because data will probably not give you the explanation of why a user acts in a certain way. It's mm. only sort of that it does mm. and in to what extent, but the motivations or the uh, actual problems you solve. I mean, don't forget to talk to the users. Mm. It's like we had a discussion in a customer meeting today that it seems that analog companies are a bit reluctant to sort of look at the data because they, they're used to talking to the users. Mm. And I think as a tech company, it might be also 
dangerous to just look at the data instead of actually meeting and talking to to mm. users. Nice. I think that's super important as well. Yeah. So I mean, data driven can be very dangerous and can lead to like as we discussed when we met last time as well with local optimizations. Uh, exactly. I mean, I guess a balance is the solution to many, so many things. Going hybrid, <laughs> both in terms of the organization, in terms of how you interpret uh, or make decisions from data. Yeah. Right. And in, I think in general, just, you know, if you think AI versus machines, if you want to go that route, um, I think that the best thing is to have a hybrid there as well. Yeah. You should be data driven, but perhaps not fully automated for at least some more advanced things. If it's a super simple thing, like a recommender system, which not always is simple, but at least that's something that could be potentially fully automated. But for so many other tasks, it's just, you know, one source of information that augments the understanding from the human. And that can, and then the human has to do what that's, what they are good at. And if you combine the two in a hybrid way, that potentially is the the best way to go. Yeah. Would you say so? Yeah, definitely. We we talked about that quite a lot. That can be where I mean, you can of course. I mean, a machine learning model will probably give you some probabilities of it being right. I mean, mm. how sure it is. I mean, you can let it decide up to a certain threshold, and then you can add. Uh, human uh, interface on top for the specific cases or the ones with most or least signal. Mm. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's all about trying to, I think, be like focused on like the situation you're at, the context and then the, the impact of things mm. as well. Uh, I know we had a lot of talks in the management team at Soundtrap about like type type one and type two decisions. <laughs> okay, like, move to that. We have to continue that discussion. Okay, cool. <laughs> but okay, continue. what did you mean with type one and type two decisions at that time? I mean, it's a Jeff Bezos thing from Amazon, I think from the beginning. Basically, is the is the decision easy to revert mm. if it fails or is it really permanent and so on? Mm. I mean, depending on if it's something that is very easy to change. I mean, if you do like change an interface, you run an A-B test, it doesn't work out, then you can just revert. It's like no consequence more or less. Yeah. But if you take like a big pricing change, for example, that might be much more difficult to revert. So you need to pay much more attention upfront. Mm. So I think finding the balance of like, what are the consequences? And I mean, that also goes back to sort of product management and like Silicon Valley product group things like Inspired and those books uh, from Marty Kagan with validating the product risks before you do something and taking informed decisions where I've actually looked at the problems and understood them, um, fed it into the context and also like the, the, the probability and consequence of something happening, um, I would say is the the thing to do. So what, what we have tried in many ways is to try to enforce that into like business reviews, like how, how what is the data right now? What kind of conclusions do you draw from that? And like, how do, does that change? Like the DIB framework that you mm -hmm. talked to yes. Henrik Landgren about. Yes. How, how do you update your worldview based on the sort of situation now and the data you have? Um, and then looking at, okay, based on that, how do you assume or sort of how do you analyze and decide what you think is the right way mm. to 
the right thing to do right uh, now. And just to let people know, the DIB framework is basically the data insights and beliefs. So you like refine the data from from yeah the, the raw data you have into some set of insights, and yeah. then you frame some beliefs in how to make a and, decision. And the bets, that's yes, the last the bit as well. Yeah. And I think that was a big learning from sports betting, and I tend to sort of go back to that. I mean, if you, I mean, if I would bet something against you, if we were talking about AI. I wouldn't be very confident in my chances that I would win. So mm. I would have a very low probability of winning, meaning I probably shouldn't spend, set a bet that is that mm. high. But if we were talking about, I don't know, schools in Elmhult, <laughs> yes. then maybe I could think that, yeah, maybe I have an edge on that so yeah. I can go bet yeah. bigger. And I think that's sort of valuing like the stakes you put in versus the probability of mm. success. This game theoretic kind of thinking. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that is very much what decision making boils down, down to. And also, I think you just need to avoid like analysis paralysis as well, because mm. you will never have all the facts. You need yeah. to deal with uncertainty. Yes. I think being too risk averse is also a very dangerous thing, which is also something that sort of, well, I think it's the case also for companies just starting out. They tend to mm. want reports on everything and then they don't really know what's important. Yeah. Um, what do you think about like a Facebook uh, comment like move fast and break things? Um, and, and let me just uh, perhaps put that in a more context. I mean, you can think about the old style kind of waterfall planning, thinking ahead like a couple of months before you even start working with something. Um, that is, you know, very safe, low risk, and you have considered all the contingencies that you can think of. But on the other side, it, it will be moving very slowly. On the other hand, if you move too fast without doing any kind of thinking, you get a lot of stuff out potentially in, in a product, but you will breaking things all the time and you have to revert all the, th all the things all the time. So the value will still be slow. So the, the value that you provide for, for the company will be slow in both extremes. Like either, either you move too fast or too slow. What do you think about this? Is, is this basically this kind of game theoretic thinking you're thinking about in finding the right balance of taking risks sometimes to I, make I, a change? <clears throat> I definitely think so. I'm, I'm probably tilting towards run fast and break things myself. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's how I'm geared. But also at the same time, you, can, you, you need to evaluate the risks and also the type one or type two, like, can mm. I revert it? What happens if I'm wrong? Right. And like, what is the consequence in relation to the likelihood mm. uh, somehow? But I think, uh, I think it's super important. And I think, I don't know th this is my pure theory. I, I think we are risk averse. I mean, we are risk averse as human beings. I mean, that's also a scientific mm. fact. Yes. We, we, we rather, uh, not lose 100 crowns than winning 100 crowns. Mm. Losing pay, uh, sort of hurts more. That's that's like a <laughs> sort of biological fact. Mm. But also I think a cultural trait is, I think we don't deal with failure very mm. well in Sweden. Right. Yeah. It's my and theory. Of, and a lot of companies perhaps don't have this kind of forgiving kind of culture either. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Mm. But I, I, I think... I think that's definitely a case where we're sort of expected to be right all the time, but that's just, I mean, to be fair, it's, it's a fallacy. It's just uh, an uh, imaginary world because we all make mistakes all the time. Right. It's just like, how big are they? How do we, how do we handle it? Do we learn from it or do we try to hide it? Yeah. And I think having a culture where you focus 
on the problem rather than assigning blame, I think is super important because the realization when you start running A-B tests, for example, is that you get black on white that most of the stuff you do is probably fail. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't add value. And that realization can be quite hard if you feel like, oh, that's hurting Yeah, uh, because I thought I was right. You're making but if you can, still that you think this is going to be an improvement, but then it turns Exactly. Out I mean, if you say yeah. that, yeah, my probability of being right is uh, 25%, but the upside is enormous, yeah. then maybe it's worth the risk of right. failing. So I think that is... Um, critical part and yeah. I'm sort of very passionate in like trying to trying to get that as right as you can I think sometimes you should even have a KPI the person that you know admits to being wrong the most should have a higher salary <laughs> yeah but it's it's it? uh, really? <laughs> yes I, no, think but so. I, I think you will have a future guest in Mikhail Shilkin here oh, yeah. mm. he told me yeah, he was a data scientist uh, worked with at Cambi Mm. And he told me one thing that really stuck, uh, that his job as data scientist is to prove people wrong. Oh. Because that's the valuable outcome of yeah. his work. Yeah. Because if, if you're right, uh, everyone will know about it. Yeah. You will have built a feature, it will be celebrated, it will be right. Mm. But if you do something wrong and hide it, it's mm. very likely that it will happen again by mm. someone else. Mm. So learning from failure and like, as Spotify, I guess, uh, celebrating failure a bit yes. is, yeah, I think exactly. it's really, Celebrate really, failures. It's, actually, yeah. it, it's really important just not to create a nice culture, but it actually adds a lot of value, yeah. uh, admitting, noticing and learning from failures. It adds value, but also I think it removes the whole, you know, the, the scary part of admitting failure, which is so dangerous because then people start to fake fail, uh, success instead. Yeah, it's super dangerous. And Success uh, theaters is like yeah. really an anti-pattern for uh, for being data-driven. I, would I say. think that we need to put a, a very very fat line mm. between uh, different um, uh, what is called um, um, work positions where you can be actually rewarded if you do wrong. So what if a fireman does something wrong? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so maybe we should limit it's it to type one and type two. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it's hard to. And it's innovation <laughs> and research. It cannot be, or a politician making a wrong move, which uh, or, yes, or making. like a surgeon, you know, making or a surgeon, right? So yes. it it cannot be that the 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 most the person that actually fails the most gets uh, most rewarded in a research, maybe or not in a research, you know, innovation think, and in this context. I think even a surgeon yes. can admit to a lot of mistakes as long as not like type two kind of things or these things that can't be revert. All right. right? Okay. So let's uh, let's make it then for a type two. <laughs> you should be rewarded, but not for the type one. Which one is which, by the way? The type two is the permanent thing, right? Uh, type two is the. I just googled it actually. <laughs> type Good. So um, yeah, it was like this. <clears throat> type two decisions are life. Uh, uh, type two decisions are like walking through a door. Okay. Uh, if you don't like the decision, you can walk away. Okay. Yeah. So it's type one that's so a permanent thing. Type one thing. is the permanent yeah. one. Yes. Okay, uh, but I think I, I think it's super, super important and just sort of, I don't know, it, it's also one of the benefits being like involved in analytics because you're sort of, it's part of your job to be very fact oriented and just state things as they are. Yeah. It's sometimes always not valued that you state things as they are, but I think it's really important and... Yeah. 
And, and me personally, if I heard, hear someone say, I was wrong, you know, th this adds so much, you know, credibility for me. I remember one person at Spotify called Adam Kava. Ah, I'm working with him now. You are? Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, working with his company at, at Vault. So I'm involved oh, there. Um, yeah. What's get uh, fast? What is it called? Uh, uh, get in data. Get in data, right? Right, of course. So I'm, I'm going to Warsaw next week to meet yeah, up yeah, with yeah. those guys. I mean, he made these kind of awesome talks, you know, and, and he said, you know, oh, I did so many mistakes. Oh, that was so wrong. Oh, that was so horrible. And when a person goes on stage and say that, it adds so much credibility. And yeah. I, I wish people understood that this is actually how you should speak and think. And if everyone <coughs> were doing that, you would have a culture where I think people would be so much more productive in a good sense, so to speak. I, I definitely think so. Um, I actually listened to, uh, I don't think it was Adam, but it was some colleagues from him when he, when he was at Spotify. Uh, mm. I think it was like Hadoop Summit in Brussels, like I don't yeah. know, 2012 or 2013. Yeah. They were standing holding a presentation about sort of how they killed the whole cluster at Spotify when the board was having a visit. So uh, sort of, <laughs> yeah, we fucked I've up. We fucked up. Well. Uh, yeah, okay, <laughs> it's yeah. like we learned from it, we implemented things and uh, it's, uh, for me, it's very refreshing because, as you say, I mean, people make mistakes all the time. Yeah. So what's, it's, it's, um, that's and how I we think, learn, right? I think a person that does no mistake is doing two things wrong or one of two things wrong. Yeah. Either they're playing super safe all the time or they're hiding stuff. Exactly. And neither is good. Exactly. Right. Cool. Uh, and I, I see the time, but, but you spoke about type one and two, and I, I first thought you meant something else. So I'd like to move to that something else. <laughs> I, I see where, where you're going, I think. <laughs> so this is more the Kahneman kind of thinking fast and slow kind of things yeah. and moving more into, I guess, the difference between, you know, what human and the human brain is and what AI systems are. And let me just elaborate a bit more and see what you agree with and potentially does not agree with. And... And if we, I think we can all easily agree, at least with that, the type of AI that we have today is super narrow Sorry. and it's trained to do very specific things. And the human brain, it's much more general. Agree so far, right? Yes. And, you know, we can also say that AI is actually better than humans in a number of tasks, like, of course, playing chess and, uh, you know, doing perhaps some image classification or even, you know, some understanding text in some way actually can be better for some very specific tasks already today. Yes. So AI is certainly bad at some things. You know, one thing is being able to have a more gener gen general kind of understanding and reasoning capability. But then I, I think I would also like to say that humans are bad at some stuff. Oh, yeah. And, and I, I don't hear people saying <clears throat> that enough. And I get really annoyed when someone claims that the goal for AI should be ha to have human level intelligence. Yeah. Because humans are really stupid sometimes. Humans are really bad at some tasks. It's yeah. very easy to see. I mean, try to ask anyone to try to multiply two large numbers. Try to have any human trying to memorize, you know, 20 things. And remember it. A computer can do that so easily. So, we have to recognize that humans are really, really bad at some stuff. AI is really, really bad at some stuff. And I think it's better to f focus on what they are bad at. And, and then if we, if we say that, then we can say that, okay, let's see that AI is probably really good at going through large amount of data in some way. 
it can be a large like time series data for some spotting uh, sports betting kind of purpose or it can be like a huge amount of um, images in some hours of video that you want to find some kind of thing that's happening or thousands of pages of text and for humans it would take a huge time to do so but for an ai system you can do it in a fraction of a second but they don't really have the deep understanding of it. Yep. They, they don't have the, the general kind of knowledge and the reasoning capability to be able to understand what it means, but it can find it in a superficial way really quickly. So, now, uh, okay, after that rant, <laughs> <laughs> would you agree, for one, that there is a big difference t- between the human brain, what they are good and bad at, and an AI, and potentially the, the, what we should really seek if we want today to find a value from data and AI is to find the examples where humans are bad at something try to automate that part in a semi potentially automatic way then have human humans coming in helping out with a part that they are good at and having a hybrid as we said a number of times now yeah solution for that right? yes i agree 100 percent um and i mean there, there are many layers of that from problems to solve all the way to i think existential questions like the singularity and so on mm. uh, that uh, I find quite interesting. I mean, looking from a, like a really like high ex- existential, ex- existential position, yeah. I mean, you can argue that are, are we doing good or not as mm. a species? Uh, so, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I think there is uh, humans are severely flawed in many ways. And I think we need to, accept that and yeah, try to remedy that. it and, and uh, um, yeah, use, so, t- use the tools that uh, helps us. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think we should spend more time building AI that are good at things that humans are not good at. And I think it's really weird that so many people are saying that we should build AI that can reach human level intelligence. I think that's completely the wrong way to go. Yeah, know? exactly. It's the wrong framing of the problem. Yeah. We should use AI for the to, to be a complement to humans, right? Yeah. But then you, you spoke about singularity, and and since we're moving a bit you know, towards the end, perhaps we can move into a more speculative, philosophical kind of set of topics. Then and AGI kind of things, you know, general intelligence that may we we may reach at some point, and it may be a singularity <clears throat> yeah. when uh, we have lost the control in some way, and and things are moving ahead quicker than we think. But okay, so we spoke about human level intelligence potentially being a bad way to, to at least guide the development of AI, right? But, but do, you, do you have any favorite definition or things? You know, how would you say that this is the right direction of where we should spend time improving the intelligent level of AI systems? Yeah. Perhaps not a perfect definition, but you know, mm. what is the right thing to to make sure that we spend time in research and in companies to improve the value for AI? I mean, f- first, first of all, I agree very much with like we need to evaluate what activities and what work is adding value in as opposed to letting a machine do it. So, I mean, repetitive tasks that are fairly straightforward and simple uh, at scale Mm. 
I mean, we shouldn't do that. That's just a waste. Mm -hmm. um, rather focusing on, on the very complex things where we need to connect dots and stuff like that is harder for a machine learning model or an AI, like an AI, AI application to do. Um, I mean, if we could do that, that, that would be a massive productivity mm. boon of, of everything. It will, however, sort of have societal conse consequences mm. that I think we need to be prepared for and act right. on. But also, I think, I mean, we're talking, I mean, talking a lot about the problem with AI and machine learning being biased based on what the data we feed, mm. but also all those biases are coming from us humans. Mm. So I think if we can, I, I saw you posted about like, what's the optimal tax rate, for example, mm. like right. th those kind of decisions, what is best for the population? I, I think that concerns me quite a lot in the world today that is so polarized and and there non, are so many non data driven. Exactly. I mean, but I mean, super important societal questions. And I, I saw that also that you talked with Henrik Landgren. I mean, if you yeah. can't, if you can't agree on the facts, I mean, it's impossible to have a discussion about yeah. what's the best course of action. Right. And I think if we can use AI for those things, I think that would be highly valuable for humanity, I think, right. because right. we are not, um, I mean, there are so many flaws in humans, like greed and stuff like that. Now I'm getting sort of really political, I guess, and philosophical. But I think... I mean, if you take the tax example, as you men mentioned, I mean, people can't really think... I mean, humans, at least, is very anecdotal in the way they're yeah. thinking. If you want to do some kind of simulation with, you know, a million people doing a set of action a thousand times and then seeing, you know, what the change in the tax rate will have as a, as an effect on it there is no way that the human can do that no. i would argue the only way you can do that is by having some kind of data-driven approach for yeah, it definitely and i mean that there are also like I, I think we discussed that last time we met as well like economical theory as well that mm. I, I think based on the political spectrum in Sweden, I think the sort of left wing tend to go with higher taxes are always better mm. and the right wing tends to go with lower taxes always better. Yeah. But the truth and the theory is somewhere in between. There right. is like yeah. a theoretical optimal a tax rate. It's a hybrid. It's, a <laughs> it's, always, <laughs> it's always a hybrid. But I mean, if you go with ideology and beliefs instead of uh, facts, yeah. then it will always be a biased discussion. And yeah. it's like more of a rhetorical way, uh, like debate about who sort of takes the decision in the end. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there is an optimal tax rate everywhere that gives the most money per capita to the state. Yes. Then you can have discussions about, okay, how do then do we distribute that St uh, money from that state have yeah. to what should we find? So equality so, but that should be different. another objective, I guess. So I yeah. mean, productivity and objectivity, or sorry, the equality and productivity. I think in that case, what's the two objectives? You know that they want to balance. Yeah. And if you don't balance them, you know the productivity will still be suffering in the end um, because people will be really upset and it will cause some kind of you know. Yeah, but exactly. But I mean, it's uh, it's like. Call it Laffer curve. I think it's like if you have zero tax rate, mm. you will have zero income for the states. Yes, exactly. If you have one hundred percent tax rate, mm. no one would work. Yeah, I mean, exactly. To oh. those extremes is quite easy Very to well understand. Put. Yeah, it's that simple. Okay, so let me test you on another thing. You know, it's just a theory of mine, um, but there are differences between the human brain and AI, of course. And I, 
we can take the, the obvious thing. I, I would say it's it's like four or five different main things. And let's see which one you agree with here. I think one is obviously general generality that the human type of brain is much more general. It can handle so many more tasks than an AI system can today. But of course, we see all the latest type of models that we have in AI starting to be more and more multitask and multimodal and multilingual, and it's starting to become more general, but still very, very far from the level of generality that AI, or sorry, that humans have. So obviously, that's one part, right? No, I guess you're not arguing so far. No. The other, um, I would potentially say, is reasoning. And then, you know, I think people also sometimes speak a bit about this in the wrong way. I think, you know, we have so many examples of systems that do reason in some way. You can even take a chess playing AI system. It does some reasoning thinking, you know, if we do that action, what happens then? We retract, we backtrace, we try to find the best set of actions Mm -hmm. in like a a rational reasoning kind of way, but it's not high level reasoning. It's not thinking of um, objects in a high abstraction level, like this is an object, uh, this is, if, if I were to hit a head on, or hit your head with a hammer, yeah. it will cause some kind of effect in a high level reasoning kind of way. And that type of reasoning we don't have, at least, I would argue as well. Yeah, I probably agree. And, or I agree. Yeah. And I, I want to take the self-driving car example just to, to make this a bit more concrete soon. But let me just continue. So the second thing is potentially plasticity. And what I mean with this is that the AI systems we have today is that they have a data-driven approach when it comes to learning the weights of it. So instead of manually programming, programming all the rules, you just feed data and it learns the weights. But yeah. the architecture for that network that we have is very manually designed. Yes. Or potentially you have neural architectural search, but that requires so much data to be trained so it's not very plastic, basically. The human brain on the other side, it can change and rewire itself surprisingly efficiently. So even if you have some kind of stroke, you know, you can quickly rewire the brain to, Mm. to handle things in areas of the brain that didn't even do that before. So it's surprisingly plastic. And and that's certainly not the case, I would argue, with AI systems today. And the last thing, I'm speaking too much, but okay, this is the last (laughs) thing. Uh, The other thing is, you know, we are so like batch oriented today. So instead of, you know, the human brain is is both changing the weights and making inference at the same time. Whereas AI systems is very much, you know, you first train a thing, then you make a lot of inference, potentially you retrain or, you know, improve it a bit, but it's not done in an online fashion, which the brain is. And I, I'm very hopeful for like the neuromorphic kind of computing, which actually moves these th- things together. Right. Have you heard about the, the neuromorphic architecture? I haven't actually. Okay. So you have to tell me about that later. Yeah. We can take that after after work then later. Yeah. But I, I think these are the four things I would argue that this, at least to me, one of or some of the top differentiating factors, you know, generality, re- high level reasoning, plasticity, and, and online um, learning of, of the system as well. Um, do you think anything is missing? Would you agree with those four? Anything missing from those when it times, comes to, you know, what the difference is between humans and AI? No, I would uh, I would agree with all of them. Um, maybe a bit sort of the plasticity is not my key domain, yeah. so I trust you on that. Yeah. But I think it's it's uh, um, 
I, I forget the name. Uh, what's the author that wrote the, the, uh, Life 3.0? Oh, Max Tegmark. Yeah, exactly. Because mm-hmm. I, I think that's that's quite an interesting thing. If, if yeah. we, I mean, we have, we can learn, mm-hmm. but we cannot change our hardware. Yeah, right. I mean, it, an AI could potentially do, do that, that, I mean, yeah. to an extent, yeah, if we figure that out. Yeah, that's true. Um, which is also maybe the part that scares people, I guess. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I agree with the, your yeah. uh, premises. And also, if we just make it a bit concrete, like, it's, you know, everyone is st- speaking about self-driving cars now and Tesla autopilot and whatnot. Um, would would you be sell, uh, if you take a car, the latest type of uh, Tesla autopilot, I think it's up to version 10.2 or something now, would you be comfortable having your hands tied, not being able to steer the wheel and just let the car drive you around in Stockholm today? Um, no, not right now. Yeah. But then again, uh, I, I wouldn't know how good it is no. because I haven't sort of studied it on yeah. it. But I mean, of course, you. I, I guess you're referring to does it have to be perfect? Yeah. Are we perfect? Yeah. Like, is it still an improvement exactly. or is it the worst yes. driving experience? Or compare uh, it to <clears> sitting <throat> in a cab with a cab driver that's human. Exactly. That could be drunk or very tired or, you know, playing with his mobile phone. I don't know. Yeah. Which one would you trust the most? I, I agree with you. I would still trust the human drivers more today. But do you think, what if you were to make an estimate, you know, when you think the self-driving car would be an improvement to to the average tech, uh, cab driver can you give some kind of what's your thinking there when will ai be better than the average cab driver i i i mean it depends i i think there is a bit of a disconnect between feeling secure and being rational in mm. that case i mean the 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 breakpoint is probably from a rational perspective probably lower than what we think because mm. i mean <clears throat> i guess I'm, I'm probably also biased in that way i sort of tend to trust myself when i'm driving quite mm. a lot not not because i'm the best driver ever but uh, but i at least i believe i have a fairly good take on what my limits and boundaries are so i can sort of adapt mm. uh, that, that's my belief it's, it's probably not like a, a way to prove that yeah uh, but trusting but trusting I'm, someone else, even yes. I mean, that, to let you drive, I mean, it, it would probably you're probably the best driver ever. But it, no, um, <laughs> I mean, it would still be a bit of an uncertainty. Yeah. So I think that's it's a very interesting question, and I don't think I have a clear answer. But I mean, from a societal perspective, we're probably already now at the point where we should ban human driving. I guess. <laughs> Soon, at least. I'm yeah. not sure, not sure we we're there yet. but Because, uh, I mean, at, at least a machine will not fall asleep. Yeah. The machine will never be drunk. Yeah. Um, the machine will be probably quite predictable, I guess, in uh, how, how it drives. So, I mean, there are a lot over, of things. We're safe as well. I mean, it's yeah. ra- rather stopped, you know, than being, you know, it's very safe, much more safe than sorry, so to speak. Exactly. But it's it's like the coexistence then between drivers that can be totally irrational and machines to be able to adapt to human irrationality. Maybe that's the, like the problem. And also a lot of bugs that could occur, you know, in a software yeah. that we probably can't trust that much yeah, blue screen uh, yeah, exactly <laughs> that would be oh you can't even take the wheel or brake anymore that exactly. would be kind of scary cool stuff um okay 
Let me see here for some potential final questions. We spoke a bit about singularity, but I think we already covered that. If we just try to end a bit with, you know, a more forward-looking kind of question and I'm eager to go in a certain direction, but I'm biting my tongue a bit here. But AI can be used and abused for a lot of things. Um, it's happening a lot in the world these days, and we can easily imagine at least AI being used for bad things that could hurt uh, humans and society. But it could also be used for a lot of positive things like climate change or whatnot, yeah. or medical care, and, and who, who knows. What is your thinking here? Do you th are you afraid of AI being abused for malicious purposes more than you're hopeful that it will be used for, for good purposes? I think that it will be most mostly positive. Mm. Uh, but there are, of course, um, malign ways to use AI and ML. But it's it's not the technology is not evil by itself. It's a, it's, it's it's humans that use it for bad purposes. Mm. So I mean, again, it's. Um, <clears throat> but I think I mean, look, looking at well, what concerns me very much is how do we how do we teach ourselves to be like source critical? And, and uh, mm. today I, I think, I mean, I forced my son to watch uh, the social dilemma on Netflix the right. other week, because yeah. I think it's like, I mean, he's obviously a big TikTok user and YouTube users yeah. and uh, it needs to be trained that you need to be critical of everything there mm. because it might be fake. It might be, uh, real thing. Right. So you need to look for like other sources. And I think people today, it's, it's quite clear that we, we don't really have the mental tools or the training or whatever mm. necessary to, to really function in the information society that we have today. Mm. And I think that leads to a lot of bad consequences that we see right now and what we've seen during like elections in the US and stuff like that. And that, that scares me a bit. Um, but I think in general, I mean, looking at, at least I've heard someone say that humans are smart, people are stupid. Mm. And I think it's like holds true. I mean, if, if you sit down and talk to someone, you, you normally, I mean, can come to some kind of conclusion or some shared worldview, mm. but it's uh, the, the polarity and uh, extremism of opinions today, especially on the internet, where you can hide a bit, like you don't really have to confront the person that right. you're yelling at. I, I don't know, probably sounding like an old man fossil right now, but it, it scares me a bit. And I think we need to educate ourselves around that mm -hmm. much more than we do today. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm so tempted to go into the whole <laughs> Facebook uh, dilemma and, and uh, yeah, yeah just, issues. Go just go for it. Uh, okay, I mean, let's let's go there a bit more then. And uh, um, I'm not sure if you watched the Congress hearing with Mark Zuckerberg like two years ago or something. I'm not uh, sure. Yeah, parts of it. Yeah. And it, I, okay, I'm trying to phrase this in a nice way. Um, I don't think that Mark Zuckerberg have you know any evil intentions. 
I certainly don't do. I don't think any tech company actually do. I, I prefer to be an optimist. I prefer to think that they wouldn't, you know, in any way think that let's just make more money, even though it may hurt young female girls. Um, I, I do not believe that's the case. Actually, Then people are still stupid. We don't know how to manage a powerful technology like AI. So it can be consequences that are unexpected that happens, right? Am I too optimistic here, you think? Or do you think there is people that have too much power today that, you know, focus too much <clears throat> on monetary gains rather than even trying to be a good force in society? Oh, that's a super difficult question. Uh, I, I think I'm aligned with you that I, I don't believe people... I don't believe most people are evil. I actually believe most people have very good intentions and there is much more sort of uniting us than dividing us mm. actually as human beings. Um, but I think that it's quite easy to be trapped in a system where you're rewarded based on things that you might not necessarily sort of you might do something and be rewarded for what you do rather than the consequences it, it mm. has. And then it's somehow hard to point to blame, like whose fault is it and how to do it. And I, I think that's like that culture can be reinforced, making it hard for people to actually just realize what's happening. Mm. And I, I think that's, um, I guess, a problem with, Facebook and a lot of those companies that have like, I, I don't know, but do they have control over the decisions of the algorithms? Do they know the consequences? Like, can they me measure that far? Yeah. And I don't think it's bad intent at all. Yeah. I think it's good intent for most of the cases. Yes. And I mean, the, the premise of Facebook, it's, it's a great idea. And I mean, it uh, gives me a lot of positives. I'm, I'm by no means a heavy Facebook users, but I, I mean, I do use Messenger a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, gives me a lot of information. I hardly publish anything, but yeah. it's um, a lot of good things. But it's also comes with some side but effects. You, you have kids as well, right? Yeah. At what age, approximately? Is uh, Twelve. Yeah. And I guess they use a lot of social media and TikTok and whatnot. Yeah. Right. Are you afraid about that, or are you trying to <clears throat> manage that in no. some way? Well, I, I try to manage it in terms of quantity. Mm. Sorry, quantity, of course. I think it's it's um I think it's time at twelve to I mean not only sort of consume things but also like be creative in a way. Mm. So I've actually done some things now where I've forbidden my son on like Thursdays there is like no screens whatsoever. Right. Uh and that had a consequence that he he starts to cook. Oh, which is like just popped out of nowhere. Yeah. So now he's super passionate into cooking, especially meat, which yeah. <laughs> could be a problem in itself, but he likes that. So uh, yeah. I told him once a week is fine. Mm -hmm. um, but then uh, I feel a strong urge to teach him. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, TikTok is fine, but as long as you don't believe everything, you need yeah. to be critical of what you watch. And we have a lot of discussions about that. Like, mm -hmm. well, is that really true? Do you think that makes sense? Uh, is that reasonable? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so it, it's a lot of, I, I, I feel that I need to educate him. And that was also why I forced him to watch Social Dilemma. That was like mm. this exception for right. a Thursday with no screens. That was okay to watch. And if we just take the, the whole like disinformation kind of potential challenge or problem that we have, and perhaps also in these kind of polarized times that we have in the world where people are trying to portray an image uh, of something happening, perhaps but, but doing the, that in a very one-sided way, so to speak. Yeah. And, and the answer probably is in the middle, a hybrid of both as we speaking about a number of times what do you think the solutions for this is how can we try to fight the disinformation and i guess fake news if we call it that uh, that we are i would argue seeing in increased volumes over the years yeah i agree with you on that um i don't i don't know but it I don't know. I, I sort of, of course, that's probably how I'm raised and I'm probably biased that way. But I mean, it's, it's uh, in a somehow democratic society where you're elected on terms that, that and you have like an economic democratic system where you have people that probably like informed but fighting for a thing. Yeah. I, I think that's good. Uh, I mean, with just recent things, it's it's dangerous when you select one set of thoughts that are okay and then you block everything else i mean it's yeah. uh super dangerous and i don't know what the way around is i don't know if it's elon musk's satellites to try to yeah. bypass that or um or something else but it's it's very dangerous because it's obvious that people are super susceptible to information provided mm. and i mean, I mean I've, I've been just just also understanding my own ignorance about this because I've mm. been raised and uh, been living in a country where information is available. I have mm. the information. It's, mm. I, I think at mm. least, uh, but I think it's, if you're not, I, I think it's quite easy to be fed a set of beliefs and you actually believe that. Yeah. And just taking a concrete example, perhaps from Spotify as well. And there's been a big discussion around the Joe Rogan Oh yeah, podcasts. Uh, do you follow Joe Rogan or do you? I don't, some, but yeah. I was uh, at Spotify at the time, so mm. I have, of course, <laughs> insights into yeah. also the internal debates around that. And I guess the question then is uh, that we'll, all, we'll always have content being published on yeah. some kind of platform that Spotify is, and then the question is also, you know, when should you take? ownership or responsibility for what's being published as a content and um, how when is the the platform moving into more of um, like a media house that have some person responsible for all content being published the same can be argued for facebook or google or whatever yeah. of course do you think spotify made the right decision in keeping joe rogan on and uh and not censoring him in that way? No, but I think so. I mean, I just a disclaimer that I haven't listened to Joe Rogan's podcast myself. We, we had a discussion actually with the Spotify term back in, I think it was in October, mm. where we already discussed more or less like, is, is it not his existence on the platform? That I don't think anyone argued about, but yeah. that Spotify actually bought the rights um exclusive rights ex as well ex ex exclusive rights i mm. think that 
of course, needs to be evaluated. Is that aligned with company values and stuff mm-hmm. like that? Uh, so I understand that people have different opinions, but I think equally dangerous to allowing uh, sort of bad things being circulated is also like the sort of cancel culture. I think mm-hmm. that's also very dangerous. Right. Because it's a violence think, as well. If you yeah, cancel. because that can be, I mean, it can be applied from both directions. Exactly. So I'm also very afraid of that. And I think Good some, some things that Elon Musk said that, I mean, he allows now internet to a certain country that doesn't have access to it anymore. Yeah. But he refuses to drop the other countries. What was his uh, quote? It was something he's being an um, absolute. I'm, exactly, yeah. I'm like a fundamentalist when it comes to freedom of speech. Yeah, and I sort of think. And someone that had to, you know, have him at gunpoint to be able to censor things, yeah. right? And I think I would like to think that that's the way, and I hope that people are, or at least could be capable of dealing with conflicting pieces of information. Uh, but I think we need to, I mean, we, we're like the first generation born this way. I hope, mm. I mean, but perhaps, you know, Twitter has a nice approach. I think they, they are canceling so many things in Twitter. So yeah. I, I think that's perhaps going a bit too, too strongly, but they at least have some kind of like warning sign when something that they argue is potentially not accurate or factual correct yes. to speak, right? I mean, uh, using an AI for fact checking, I yes. think would be a great thing. Exactly. Yes. Uh, but then, of course, agreeing on what are the facts. Yeah. Is, uh, I mean, it's uh, what's it's, uh, it's what's, an AGI problem. What's yeah. the target variable? We have to yeah. wait until we have AI system as far as succeeding, um, yeah, succeeding the the humans and, yeah. and have much more than human level intelligence to be able to know what the facts are. But, yeah. Awesome, Daniel. Um, I yeah, let's let's stop that. It's so easy <laughs> to continue forever on these kind of topics, but yeah, let's. Let's continue that on the after after work, I think. Definitely. Donnelly, what's next in your life? What's happening professionally, privately, coming months? Mm, Coming months, a lot of things. I mean, uh, we're getting to school, obviously. Mm -hmm. So trying to figure that out. That's uh, one exciting. Are you moving in there in coming month? uh, I mean, we're not moving in, but we will prepare at least to, to live there. But I mean, the plan is, of course, to spend a big part of the summer. Yeah. So it's a lot of things like fixing, uh, fixing the walls, uh, checking up everything and uh, doing some fixes. Right. Um, other than that, I'm starting up, I mean, two projects, uh, fish brain and, uh, ramping up at vault. So that's, that's mm-hmm. super exciting and, um, some good progress. And also of course, running, running a startup company is quite fun as well. Mm. Like what is the next big fire to try to put out? <laughs> uh, cause that's. Do, do you see yourself as more of a startup person rather than being employed at a bigger company or what's your thinking there? Yeah, but I think so. I, I, I think I found, I mean, I've tried, tried my way around really small companies, mm. uh, really big companies. Uh, and I think maybe my sweet spot as an employee is somewhere like say between like 200 and 800 people mm. where it's still like fairly nimble and lots yeah. of things happening. Yeah. I'm, I'm not the maintenance type of person. That's yeah. a realization that I made. I, I love approaching and like trying to define new problems and try mm. to find solutions and build things, but I'm not the maintenance person. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, uh, but now of course, uh, 
building uh, building a new company is fun. It's yeah. like so many things I have never done before. Mm. Like how do you run marketing? How do you work with, um, I mean, sales? How do you formulate an offering that is uh, understandable by by the marketplace? Uh, it's, I mean, so many things. And I hope you do it in a data-driven way as well, right? We're not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not at all, actually. But I mean, it's it's like, again, that's probably... I mean, we're trying to find, and I guess that's the same for all startups, like trying mm-hmm. to find some product market fit yeah. and scale and speed. Yeah. Then, of course, a iterative way. So, I mean, of course, we measure things, but yeah. it's, um, uh, I mean, the volumes that we have right now, it's like I can keep them in my head so, still mm-hmm. and for some time. Mm-hmm. But we have, I mean, we have a very nice um uh, Google Cloud setup uh, mm. built on Terraform, like best practices. Oh, nice. So we have a super advanced data platform. So a good base for internal to use. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Do you have any people that you would recommend to come on this podcast? Mm, that's super hard. I was uh, I was uh, thinking about that uh, this morning, and then I dropped the ball. Um, so I think, but let's. Let's go with like a cheating bet uh, mm-hmm. that I think you will have soon. Uh, I mean, Mikhail Shilkin, I think is a person that I find, I mean, super knowledgeable and uh, interesting to talk to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a privilege of working with him at Cambi and now mm-hmm. he's at uh, Arsenal Football Club. Oh, interesting. And I'm um, being interested in sports as well. I. Um, uh, I think it would be interesting. I mm. mean, I, I will meet up with him soon, and I think he will be on the channel soon as well. So. Right, on uh, 24th of uh, March. Oh, yes. Nice. So I think it would be interesting to hear his thoughts on uh, a lot of things. Mm. You should ask him about sumo wrestling. Oh, cool. Yeah, okay, yeah. That sounds <laughs> interesting. <laughs> cool. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you here, uh, Daniel. We will continue talking and uh, speaking a bit of, lot of interesting things, I think, in coming hours. But thank you very much for coming to this podcast, podcast again. It's yeah, been a pleasure. thanks for having me. Yes, thank you.